Well, good morning, everybody. It is really good to be here with you. Uh, it is really good to be here with you because it was, uh, I don't know how much Josh told you about it, but it was kind of a close run thing. We, uh, Mariah and I had to fly from Louisville to Dallas to get my passport. I had to spend a morning in a State Department office in order to get a passport, and then, and then we got on a plane to come to Frankfurt. But it was a close run thing. What they told me, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of funny thing that happened, is that the, the, state, the U.S. State Department rolled out this new super efficient, they said, online renewal system. Uh, in January. And so on one of the particular weeks that they were rolling out this new system, every application that went into the system in this particular week, it happened to be the week that Mariah and I applied to it, every application got dumped into a folder on the State Department's computers that it turned out nobody knew the password to. And so, and so they just left thousands of applications sitting in this folder and they couldn't get them out. So when I got to the office, the guy like put in all my information and he clicked on the, you know, the, the screen on the computer and he said, huh, that's weird. He said, I can see your name there, but it's grayed out and I can't get it to open and give me all the information. I was like, yeah, well, this is your super efficient system. But thankfully, uh, other airlines and ultimately the State Department were efficient enough to to get me here. Um, it's really good to, to be here to see this place. I was here back in 2017. That's the right year, right? When y'all were building this. 2017, uh, when this particular church building was under construction, and uh, it was just a mess. It was a mess that was uh, headed toward order, but man, it looks amazing. So uh, to those of you who are members here at Rack, or uh, uh, those of you who are friends with this church, con- congratulations on this. Praise God. It's a uh, we know the story behind it, and uh, we pray for uh, Rack Evangelical Church, I, I don't know, at least once a month, Josh, we pray for you guys. Uh, so it's, it's really cool for me to be able to, to be here and, uh, and see this. So uh, we are here, though, to talk about the mission of the church. Um, I'm going to be doing two talks today. Uh, one of them is going to be a sort of uh, look at the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, and then the second of those talks is going to be a, a look at Paul's declaration in Romans chapter 1 that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So those are the two things that I want to take you to. Uh, what I want to do over the next few hours as we study this topic of the mission of the church together is engage both your mind and your heart to think about these things. Uh, and part of what I want to do is complexify the issue a little bit because I think a lot of Christians, Reformed Christians, can approach the question, what's the mission of the church? And they just have this intuitive sense that it's a really simple thing, and then they encounter people either on the internet or blogs or Twitter who push back on them, and they realize, oh, wow, what I thought the mission of the church was is not what everybody thinks the mission of the church was, and then they're sort of stuck because they don't know how to argue the case. So what I want to do is engage both your mind and your heart in this first talk Uh, We're going to be leaning a little bit more toward the mind, so I'm going to be teaching, I'm going to be arguing, I'm going to be looking at some other understandings of the mission of the church and trying to show you why, you know, this this understanding that that we have is is, is the biblical understanding, how that plays out in some various ways. In the talk uh, later this morning in Romans chapter 1, we're going to lean more toward the heart because what I want to do is not just fill your mind up with a bunch of stuff. Uh, I want to convince you that this is worth giving your life to. Uh, And I know that that those of you who are pastors and church leaders um, in this area of the world know that. Uh, You are engaged in the work. You're engaged in the work in a a hard place, a much harder place than I'm engaged in the work. Uh, And so I just want to spend a few minutes encouraging you with Paul's words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. 
So that's where we're headed. First of all, though, we're going to engage our minds a little bit by just thinking about the question, what, what exactly is the mission of the church? In other words, what is it that the church is sent by its king into the world to do? Mission is from the Latin missio. Uh, it's actually a, a, a verb in its most fundamental form, and it means to send. So, so what is the mission of the church is really could be translated very easily as what is the thing that the church has been sent into the world to do? What are we supposed to be trying to accomplish in this time between Jesus' ascension into heaven and his second coming in, in power? Now, I would guess that the vast majority of the people in this room are Christians, and so therefore you probably have taken some interest in the church. I would guess if you hadn't yet that, that this is a strange thing for you to be involved in. And if, if, man, if you're a church leader and you haven't taken any interest in the church, that would be even stranger. So I would guess that all of us are interested in this question. And if you're interested in the question or in the reality of the church, then you've probably wondered, all right, what, what are we supposed to be trying to accomplish in the world anyway? Because there are a ton of things that we as church leaders, we as churches could spend time and energy and resources on. There are a ton of things in the world that we would all recognize as good. And so the question then becomes, all right, if there's so much good stuff out there, then what is it in particular that we're supposed to be spending energy and time and resources on? What are we supposed to be aiming at? What are we supposed to be working to accomplish? What does God, what does Jesus the King expect our church to be about until he comes back? Okay, now, that question, I think, is more complex than you might think at first. I think most of us, if I were to ask you the question, what is the mission of the church, you'd probably give a quick crack at it. But when you start to get challenged by other evangelicals, other people who are Christians, when they start to question your first crack at it and ask you to defend your first crack, it gets more difficult. So is the mission of the church, is the thing that we're supposed to be doing, is it to proclaim the gospel and make disciples? Or is it to do good things in the world? to sort of make the world a better place? Or is it both of those? I mean, here's another question. Is the mission of the church, this is one that gets, you know, kicked around a lot in the literature, is the mission of the church as broad as the mission of God in the world? Here's another one. Is it the mission of the church to build the kingdom of God? Or is the mission of the church maybe to bring the world closer to the new heavens and new earth where the Bible ends, right? So if you think of it on a graph, if, if we're like here on the graph and the new heavens and new earth at the end of time is here, is our job to bring it like that much closer to what the new heavens and new earth will be about, to bring about more justice and less oppression, less poverty, more welfare. Is that our job in the world, to get us just that much closer to what God intends the end to look like? So it's a complex question. There's a lot that goes into it. The, the waterfront of the discussion about the mission of the church is, is extremely broad with a lot of different questions. What is the new heavens and the new earth? How does that relate to us as Christians now? What is the kingdom of God? How does that relate to us? Are we to be building the kingdom of God? Lots and lots of questions across the waterfront. But it's not just complex. It's also critically important because we know beyond any shadow of doubt that the Lord Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, didn't leave his church in the world just to sort of be a social club, just to be a mutual affirmation and self-help society. That's not why we're here. We know intuitively that Jesus intends for us to be doing something. We're not just supposed to sit here and twiddle our thumbs and, you know, drink coffee together until heaven comes. 
He left us here for a purpose. And if that's true, then we need to be crystal clear about what that purpose actually is so that we can be about the work of accomplishing it. Now, the trouble, though, and, and if, you've, if you've been engaged at all in this, in this question, this won't be a surprise to you at all. The trouble is evangelical Christians are not agreed on what that purpose, that mission is. So let me try to explain what a couple of different camps are. It's, it's complicated. People have their, you, you could probably identify if you really did a, you know, if you did a PhD dissertation on it, for instance, you could identify 20 different understandings of this question. But let me try to boil it down into two. Two big camps that evangelicals tend to fall in on this question of what is the mission of the church. So on the one hand, there is what you might call a broad understanding of the church's mission. A broad understanding of the church's mission. And if you're a person who holds to the broad understanding, then you're going to argue that the mission of the church, the purpose for which the church is sent into the world by Jesus, is basically as broad as God's own purpose for the world. So if Scripture teaches that God is about the work of doing something in the world, then the corollary to that is that the church, too, must be about doing that thing. So there's one author that puts it like this. He says, It is our call as the church to partner with God in his restorative work in the world. That is to be the conduits for him to bring healing to earth and its residents. So if God is about the work ultimately of bringing healing to the earth and its residents, then our job as the church is to be about the work of bringing about that same healing. Here's another author who's urged the church to take as its model for mission the exodus. He's, he says that because the exodus has political, social, and economic aspects, the church also should take as its mission the transformation of earth's political, economic, and social systems. Sometimes this broad understanding of the church's mission extends, you know, as, as far as you could really imagine. Some, there are authors who have argued that it includes things like the provision of universal health care, the provision of universal affordable housing, the eradication of poverty and systemic oppression, even the funding of disease research and the funding of uh, research to, to, to come up with clean energy alternatives. The church ought to be giving its energy and even money to those sorts of things. So essentially this position, this broad understanding of the church's mission says if something is good, if something is in line with God's will for the world or even for his future plans for the world, then that thing falls within the church's mission. It falls within the reason for which Jesus has sent us into the world, and we as the church have an obligation to be about that thing. Now, you can have arguments within this broad position about what constitutes, you know, a good thing or something for which God is working, right? So even if you're in the broad uh, uh uh, a camp in terms of understanding the mission of the church. You may argue, for example, about whether clean energy research actually falls within God's good plan for the world. You can argue about that. But once you come to a decision that, that yes, it does, then the church is then obligated to, to put its shoulder to the plow of being about that work. So let me just put it really sharply. You might say that this broad position says that the church's mission, the thing we are sent by Jesus into the world to do, is fundamentally to make our neighborhoods and our societies and our world a better place to live. Make our societies, neighborhoods, and world a better place to live. Now, that doesn't exclude the preaching of the gospel. It doesn't exclude individual salvation. It just puts the preaching of the gospel and individual salvation in a certain logical place. The idea is that if you get more Christians, you're going to get more societal transformation in a certain place. 
So, so redeemed people, and the more of them you can get, leads to transformed societies. And that's basically how the preaching of the gospel, individual salvation fit into it. So that's, that's a broad understanding of the church's mission. On the other hand, is a position that you might call, you know, not surprisingly, a narrow understanding of the church's mission. And that position believes that while there are a ton of good and admirable things that a Christian and even sometimes a church may be involved in, even though there's a lot out there that we may work to accomplish in the world, there is, instead of a a broad understanding, there's a very specific and narrow set of things that the Lord Jesus gave his church to accomplish in the world. So let me cut to the chase. This position, I don't have as much to say about this one because it's just much simpler. To cut to the chase, the position would argue that those marching orders from Jesus, that, that sort of golden mission or purpose that we're to be about in the world, isn't so much to make the world a better place to live, though that it may be a byproduct of people coming to Christ, but that golden mission is to proclaim the good news of Jesus and make disciples of Jesus. That's the narrow understanding. Now, now I haven't told you which one you know, I fall on or, or like, though my guess is that you know, most of you could guess just by the fact that you're here. What I, what I want you to understand before we get into it, though, is that this isn't just an academic question. I know that sometimes it's easy to get into these theological, academic questions where sometimes we're looking at the Greek, sometimes we're looking at particular syntax of certain phrases, and our eyes can just glaze over. That's, that's probably not that big a problem in a room like this, but when you start talking to people just in general in the chairs and pews of your church, that's what tends to happen. Like, oh, this is an academic question for the, for the theologians. But, but what I want you to understand, and, and you'll know this intuitively as church leaders, is that it's not just academic. I mean, it has to do with what our missionaries are supposed to do when they go to other cultures. It has to do with how we as churches are supposed to spend missions dollars. It has to do with where we're supposed to direct energies on the mission field and ministries at home. So what is the mission of the church is an eminently practical question, not just an academic one, because it tells us where and how and for what purpose to put boots on the ground in all kinds of places around the world. Okay, so let's just, let's just get to it. What is the mission of the church? Is it broad or is it narrow? Is it fundamentally to make the world a better place to live? Or is it to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of Jesus regardless of whether the, the world becomes a better place to live? In short, I want to argue for a narrow understanding of the church's mission. I want to argue that the mission of the church, the great purpose for which Jesus sent it into the world, is basically summarized in the Great Commission as Jesus gives it at the end of every single one of the Gospels in one form or another and at the beginning of of Acts. So to put it short and sharp, the church is sent into the world to witness to Jesus by proclaiming the Gospel and to make disciples of all the nations. So just just quickly getting into some of the implications of this, that means, if that's true, if the mission of the church is really to proclaim the Gospel of Jesus and make disciples, then this means that the mission of the church is not everything that we or you or I do in Jesus' name. It is not everything that we do in obedience to Christ. There are a lot of things that we do in obedience to Christ. There are a lot of good things that we do as Christians, even that we sometimes do as churches, that really don't fall in that golden mission and purpose. And we need to be clear about when we are doing something that's inside the mission and when we're doing something that is obedience and good. It's critically important that we do that. So the mission is the task that we're given by the king to accomplish. It's what Jesus established and chartered and commissioned his church in the world to do. And if we want to figure out what Jesus sends us into the world to do, the best place to look 
in all the Bible is the Great Commission. So that's what I want to do primarily in this talk. So most of what we're going to be doing here is looking pretty closely at the Great Commission as it's known in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 to 20. So take a Bible and turn over there. Matthew chapter 28, 16 to 20, very end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And here's what, here's what Matthew writes. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, we're going to pick that apart and look at it in terms of, you know, who, what, when, where, why, those, those sorts of questions. We're going to ask those of this text. But before we get there, we need to ask why, when it comes to this question, what's the mission of the church, why do we come to this particular text? I mean, it's not like when we get the Bible, it's printed in gold or something to say, you know, this is the mission. But there are reasons why we go to this text as opposed to text in the Old Testament or other things that Jesus said and commanded. There are reasons why we go here to understand what the mission of the church is. There are reasons why it's got the name Great Commission, right, as opposed to any other commandment that Jesus gave. So here are a few reasons for it. Here are a few reasons for why we call this the Great Commission and why we go here to understand the golden purpose of the church. So first of all, if the entire Bible is essentially a missional book, and I, and I think that's probably an accurate description, the whole Bible from start to finish is describing God's mission in the world and telling us what God is about in the world. Even if that's true, it still makes sense to ground what we as Christians are supposed to do in mission on Scripture's explicit commands, like the imperative verbs, rather than just a kind of looking at the whole and trying to figure out what the tender of the whole is. So let me, let me give you an example for why that's important. I think that one of the biggest mistakes in much of newer missions literature out there is this assumption that whatever God is doing in the world, whatever God cares about in the world, that too is our task. So you'll sometimes hear it talked about as if the missio dei, if the mission of God is ultimately to restore shalom, re renew the whole cosmos, bring about the new heavens and the new earth, then just because that's the fact, then we, as his partners, his conduits in the world, we are supposed to be working to the same ends. Now, that's a, that's a big argument that people make. It's an 800-page book that makes that, makes that case at its very essence, that what God is about in the world, that is what we are about in the world. The missio dei is the missio ecclesia. The mission of the God is the mission of the church. But, but here's, my, here's my question to that sort of argument. What if we are not called to be partners with God in everything he undertakes? What if there are certain things that God has said that he's going to do that we are not supposed to help him with? Like, for example, the slaying of the wicked. I mean, you realize God has said, I'm going to slay the wicked. In the book of Revelation, I'm going to slay the wicked, and the blood is going to go like go up to the horse's bridles. God has said, I'm going to do that. I care about that. That's a good thing. And yet you and I are not supposed to be helping with that right now. 
Like, not at all. Don't, don't teach your church to go out and slay people that they think are wicked. That's just, that's not the mission of the church. And, and once you understand that, once you can see that, okay, there's a chink in the armor right there. The missio dei includes the slaying of the wicked, but the missio ecclesia does not include the slaying of the wicked. You can metaphorize that with the slaying with the word, but that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Once you realize there's a chink in the armor, the whole principle falls apart. We are not to be about the work of everything that God cares about in the world. It's just better. It's better for us not to look at the Bible as a whole, try to figure out what God cares about, and then do that thing. It's better for us, rather, to look at what God has actually told us to do, right? The imperatives, the commands. And so that's why we go to a text like Matthew chapter 28. That's, that's one thing. Second, but there are a lot of commands in the Bible, right? Old Testament, New Testament, every book of the Bible includes commands for God's people. So that's not enough. Second thing, though, is that it makes sense to look to the New Testament more than the Old Testament to get our theology of mission. It just, it just makes more sense. And that's not to say that there was no mission in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has all kinds of stuff in it about God's heart for the nations. It's got his promises to bring the nations into his family. It's got all kinds of stuff. But you read the Old Testament and you realize that it's also mainly concerned with the nation of Israel, Right? And in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel are not exhorted to go out into the nations to engage in the kind of cross-cultural evangelism that we as Christians are involved in. It's a different thing. Their light, centered in Jerusalem, in the, the temple of God, is an attractional thing. That's why the nations come to Solomon, right? To see the glory of the, of the Lord and the glory of Solomon's kingdom. They don't go out into the world in order to take the, 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 uh, uh, the truth of, of, of God to the nations. Well, that changes, obviously, in the New Testament. So now, what we're supposed to do is to take the word of the gospel to the nations, to go out from Jerusalem and Judea to the uttermost ends of the earth. So there's a fundamental change that takes place in the New Testament from the old, and if we're going to develop a theology of mission, it makes more sense to look to the New Testament. Okay, third, there's a lot of New Testament, though, right? Paul says stuff, and John says stuff, and Peter says stuff, and Jesus says stuff. you got lots of New Testament but it makes sense that we would look to Jesus for our missional theology. Why? Because he's the king, because he's the Lord of the church, because he created the church and he claims the right to commission and send the church. And so when Jesus speaks to his people and tells them what he wants us to be about, we would do well to pay close attention to that. That's another reason that we zero in on words of Jesus. But there are a lot of words of Jesus, right? He says a lot of things. He commands a lot of things. So where do we go to find sort of this golden mission of the church? Well, fourth, the placement of the great commissions points to their importance. Now, did you, you, you notice the plural there, great commissions? That's because, I mean, we always go to Matthew because it's the sort of fullest and longest. But at the end of every single one of the Gospels, all four of them, and then at the beginning of Acts, which launches the, the history of the church, the, these ideas are reiterated to the disciples. Every single gospel in various places has these words reiterated, and then the book of Acts gets launched with the very same idea. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, and then the whole rest of the book of Acts is organized around that commission from Jesus getting, getting fulfilled. So you're, I don't know if you've ever studied Acts. It's, it's fascinating when you start looking at Acts how singularly focused it is on the story of the word going to the nations. Have you ever noticed in Acts when people tend to speak in tongues? That's confused people for forever. 
because they just think, well, sometimes they speak in tongues and sometimes they don't speak in tongues when they get saved. And what's, what's going on with that? Well, if you study it, what you're going to notice is that in Acts 1.8, Jesus reiterates this commission and he gives kind of sort of concentric circles, right? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what happens in the book of Acts is that every time the gospel breaks one of those barriers into a new circle, that's when people speak in tongues. So the whole book is organized around the word of the gospel following the commission of Jesus. So it makes sense that we go to these four places uh, at the end of each gospel and then at the beginning of Acts. These words are placed at the end of the story and at the beginning of the story of Acts. And what that's meant to communicate is that these are critically important. Pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. And so that's what we do. So Matthew 28, we could go to Mark, Luke, John. We could go to the beginning of Acts to sort of do the same study. Um, But this is the fullest, this is the clearest. And so we go to Matthew 28 to try to understand the mission. So Matthew 28, 16 to 20 comes obviously at the end of the book of Matthew. It's been unfold, the book has been unfolding the story of Jesus and his claims. Uh, Matthew's an extraordinary book. Jesus claims to be amazing things. He claims to be the king of Israel, the son of God, the suffering servant, the mediator of a brand new covenant with God, his people's representative and substitute and champion. He claims to be the one way that anybody can be saved from their sins and given eternal life. And he backs up those claims throughout the book again and again and again by doing miracles. That's how the miracles function. He basically says, hey, guys, I'm the son of God. And in order to prove it, let's get this dude, you know, up from the dead. So, you know, rise up and get up off your bed and and, and walk. And that's meant to prove his identity as the son of God. Well, finally, at the end of the book, he submits to the will of his father, goes to the cross. He cries out that amazing Uh, what we call cry of dereliction from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then early on that Sunday morning, on the third day, the women saw the tomb opened and they met Jesus risen from the dead. So that brings you right up to the very end of the story, like halfway through the last chapter of Matthew. And the question is, all right, what now? How does this story end? Jesus is resurrected. How does it end? Well, in, in one sense... I guess it does kind of end. The story sort of ends at the end of Matthew chapter 28, right? Jesus' earthly work is done. His people are saved from their sins. The new covenant is finished and closed and executed, and he's not going to be with his disciples anymore. So in that sense, a story is ending. But in another sense, the story doesn't end at all. And Matthew actually flags us to that fact in the very structure of his book. Now, I'm not going to tell you about that yet, but I want you to hold on to what I'm saying there. He's flags us to the fact that the story is not over in the very like macro structure of his book. And I'm going to tell you about that at the very end when we get to it. What Matthew's trying to communicate, you'll see how in a minute, is that actually this in the end, this is just the beginning because from here, the church takes over. Okay, here's, here's, what I want to, here's what I want to talk to you about. I want to look at Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and I want to ask some questions of it. I want to ask the question, where? The question who, the question why, the question what, and then how. So where, who, why, what, and how. Five questions. Uh, None of those are just academic. I think they all have something to say to us about what the mission of the church is. So let's start looking at them. Number one, first question I want to ask is where? Like where does this happen and why is that important? Well, if you look at the end of the last section, back up at verse 10, the resurrected Jesus 
told his disciples to go on to Galilee where they were going to see him. Now, in the meantime, so they go up to Galilee and wait on him. Apparently, he made several appearances in and around Jerusalem during that time. But eventually, they went to Galilee. The followers of Jesus made their way to Galilee. They spent about 40 days there in Galilee being instructed by Jesus. Now, Galilee, why is Galilee so important? I mean, is is it just there because it's true? I mean, there are certain details in the Bible that are just there because they're true. They actually, in fact, went to Galilee. You know, that's interesting. And, And we put it in there because it's history. But that's not all it is. There are a couple of reasons why Galilee is, in particular, really important. First, that was the place where Jesus had done most of his ministry. So as he launches his disciples into their mission of proclaiming him as king, he basically wants them to realize that that this is not a brand new thing. What they're about to do in proclaiming the kingdom of God and proclaiming its saving king is fundamentally the same thing that he had been doing. It's picking up right where he had left off. He, he had been running around Galilee and making his way to Jerusalem every once in a while, across the river to Gentile lands it, uh, several times. But in Galilee, he was proclaiming, I am the king who can save you from your sins. And the disciples are going to pick up and change that just a little bit to say, he is the king who can save you from your sins, right? That's what they're supposed to do. And the pres- their presence there in Galilee, the mission launching, is, is part of uh, communicating that to them. Second thing, though, you can flip here if you want to. Uh, or I can just read it to you. But look back, or think back anyway, to chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Because Jesus had begun his ministry, and Matthew flags the beginning of that ministry by quoting a passage from Isaiah chapter 9. You look at 12, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, that's all Galilee, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, these people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, what's he saying there? Well, he's saying that these people in in the lands of Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee, there are people who have been in great darkness. Now, now why would that be? They're in great darkness. Well, because they're the farthest north, right? So any invasion that comes into Israel, invasions into into the lands of Israel never came from this direction. There's too big of a desert there, and you just, you couldn't bring an army across the desert. So what you had to do was bring your army over the top of the the, the north side of the desert and then down into the territory of, of Israel. So Assyria attacked from the north, and Babylon attacked from the north. Everyone who invaded Israel hit Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee first. I mean, they just endured hammer blow after hammer blow of invasion. And so God promises in Isaiah 9, and Jesus fulfills it in the beginning of his ministry, that the light is going to shine first and brightest in this darkest of places. It's an incredible thing that he does there. In the darkest of places in the land of Israel, that's where the light shines at the beginning. It's just, I mean, I, you know, that'll, that'll preach a lot. I mean, you could spend a lot of time talking about how in the darkest portions of your life, that's where the light's going to shine. At the darkest moments of your life, that's where you look to God and see the light most clearly. There's, gr- there's great hope in that. Nobody is, nobody, nobody in no land whatsoever, no matter how dark and hard it is, no one is ever beyond the hope of the gospel. And even Jesus beginning the mission in Galilee is trying to teach us that. So that's, that's the importance of the where. Who? Well, look back at Matthew 28 now. 
One big question here is, well, who was, who was here when Jesus gave this command, and to whom did Jesus give this commission? So some people look at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed. And they look at that and they say, well, that, it's only the 11. So only the 11, that's the 12 apostles minus Judas, who's dead now, remember. It's only the 11 who got the great commission. And some even go so far as to say that Matthew 28, 16 to 20 does not apply to us as the church. It only applies to the 11. They were to go out and preach the gospel, but we are just sort of, you know, to kind of figure out our own way. I, I think there are a couple of reasons, though, why that's not accurate. First, the people who are told to go to Galilee are disciples and my brothers. So if you look back at verse 10, Jesus said to them, to the women, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And then they're called, they're called disciples. So I think throughout the book of Matthew, disciples and brothers are, are never used to just refer to the 11. They're always used to refer, apostles is used to refer to the 11 or the 12. Disciples and brothers is used to refer to a sort of bigger concentric circle around Jesus and the 12. So when I think, it, so when it says the 11 disciples, I think the 11 disciples are a subset of the disciples and brothers that are sent in verse 10. It's a larger group of people that go. Here's a second reason for, for, uh, for understanding this. When does this mission that Jesus gave to the apostles actually take effect? As you think about the story of the Bible, when does it, does it take effect immediately? No, he tells them to wait. He gives them the great commission, and he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes on you in power. So at Pentecost. And, and what's the theological significance of Pentecost? It's not just the launching of the 12 apostles. It's the launching of the church. So Jesus gives the commission to the 11 apostles. He says, wait until the church is launched and then get about this work. So it's not just the 11 that are given this commission. It's the church, and Jesus makes it clear by that delay. So that's number two. The who is not just the apostles. It's, it's the church. It's, it's us. We have this commission as the church. Why? Well, why are they given this commission? Well, if you look at 18, Jesus gives them the basis for the mission he's about to give them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. It's just an extraordinary statement. I mean, you imagine the, the best, you know, best leader in this place, whoever, Josh Manley. If Josh Manley stood up here and said to you something as crazy as, guys, I am here to announce to you that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I have instructions for you now. You'd, you'd run him out of town, and you should run him out of town, because that's crazy. But Jesus says it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's why the mission takes place, because Jesus wants it to. Okay, well, well number four, what? What exactly is the mission? Jesus is very specific. Well, the mission, the golden purpose for which Jesus sent us is in verses 19 to 20. And essentially... You can see it there. It is that Jesus' followers are to be his witnesses, his heralds, his royal ambassadors in the world. So let's look at it. The heart of that commission is, is the command, make disciples. In, in other words, in order to make disciples, what do you have to do? You have to proclaim who King Jesus is. You have to proclaim what King Jesus can do in the forgiveness of sins and salvation and bring people to be his disciples, to, to follow him. So that's the heart of it. Proclaim the good news, make disciples of King Jesus. 
Now, notice also where that's supposed to happen. It's supposed to happen in all nations, all nations. Now, what, what does that mean? Does that just mean the, you know, about 200 political entities that exist in the world today? No, probably not. It probably means something different than that because, you know, the makeup of the world wouldn't have even been the same when Jesus said this. There's been a movement in our time to define that term nations, eth- ethne, very precisely in terms of ethno-linguistic groups. So scholars have looked at the world, they've determined ethno-linguistic groups, and they've determined that there are precisely 9,756 people groups in the world, or 16,713, or 27,452, or 10,514, or 11,255, depending on who's talking. So actually, even if you take it as ethno-linguistic groups, it's not very precise at all. And, and that's, that's the problem that we run into when we do things like saying there are 9,756 people groups in the world and we're going to put a chart on the wall of our church and we're going to tick those off every time we get a believer in one of those. And as soon as we tick off the last checkbox, bam, Jesus comes back. That's the problem with that because it's not a precise word. In the Bible, ethne, nations, can be used for all kinds of things. It can refer to a particular ethnic group It can sometimes, though, refer to an entire political empire, like Babylon or Assyria. Or sometimes it'll even refer to the entire Gentile world without distinction. So so here's my point. Jesus, when he says, take the gospel, make disciples of all the nations, he does not mean divide the world up into 9,000 little groups and get one believer in every single one of them, and then I'll come back. That's not what he means. He's not giving that kind of technical instruction. He's saying, whether you think about ethne, nations, as particular ethnicities or nation states or political entities or empires or countries or nations or just the whole stinking world, go make disciples of everybody. And don't stop doing that until I come back and tell you to stop. We shouldn't put a chart on our wall. We shouldn't We shouldn't strategize to get one believer in each of 16,713 ethnic groups. We just preach the gospel like the farmer with the seed in the parable. We just throw seed everywhere, and we keep throwing seed until Jesus comes back. Until Jesus comes back, we are to make disciples, and we are to do so without distinction. Okay, that central command, though, make disciples of all the nations, is modified by three other things. You've got go in verse 19 and then baptizing and teaching in verse 20. Now, now some people have looked at those words and used the fact that they're not imperatives, and they're not. They're not imperatives. They're they're participles, right? It's going, or as you go, and baptizing and teaching. And, And they've basically said, for example, well, look, I know it's translated in your Bibles as an imperative. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. But it doesn't really say that. It just says, as you're going, right? Going make disciples. And they've said that there's no real imperative force behind that verb. Well, let me put this as sharply as I can. That is flat wrong. It may be a participle in its morphology. It may not be an imperative, but it's got an imperative force to it. Now, that doesn't mean that every Christian everywhere constantly has to be on the move, or that you have to go away from your home country to somewhere else in order to take the, the gospel. That's not, that's not what, what go is, is about. What going there, or go, is about is King Jesus calling his people to action. 
wherever you are in whatever set of circumstances you're under, you are to be called to action. You're supposed to get up off the couch and go do something. Put active energy into making disciples of the world. You're supposed to live with your eyes wide open. You're supposed to live with your eyes and your heart active as an ambassador of the king. Doesn't mean you have to go overseas, but it does mean you go. You don't just float through life. So, I mean, you, you know, most, most of you, brothers and sisters, are the ones who, like, went in the biggest sense possible. You went to other lands from your homeland in order to plant churches and make disciples. God, God bless you for that. You know, there may be others who, who say, well, that's, that's not me. Like, like me, for instance. I've not left my homeland unless you consider moving from Texas to Kentucky, leaving your homeland, which Andy Johnson and I very much do. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Yeah, but even if, even if you are where the Lord had you to be born, even if you're still there, you are to be active in your activity and energy of following the king and carrying out his commission. Okay, there are, other two, there are two other verbs there, baptizing and teaching. Uh, I'm not going to spend any time on that. Teaching to obey means a lifelong commitment to following Jesus. It's not just a, it's, it, Jesus is being very clear. I don't just want you to get a verbal commitment from people to be my disciples and then leave them alone to do their own thing. I want you to teach them everything I have commanded and equip them to be disciples, not just for a moment or a year or 10 years, but to be my disciples for life. When you become a Christian, it opens, up, it opens up a whole new world. It's like opening the wardrobe to Narnia when you become a Christian. And you need people to help you understand that world. And that's what we do as missionaries, as church planners, as church leaders. We teach people so that they will become more and more like Jesus and be conformed to him. Okay, the fifth one, how? Not going to spend any time on this at all. Verse 20, it's the last line of Matthew's gospel. Behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. It's an incredible promise. It's fulfilled by the Holy Spirit living in us. That's how we carry out this mission. Not just by ginning up confidence, not just through strategic maneuvering, not just through techniques. We do it by the Holy Spirit building confidence up in us so that we speak the gospel boldly and make disciples of Christians. Okay, three quick points of application. Three quick points just as we finish up. Number one, if you are a Christian then this commission to go and make disciples of all the nations is given to you. If you're a Christian, this is given to you, whether you're a church leader, whether you're a church planter, whether you're a missionary, whether you're just a faithful member of a church, whether you just traveled in for this conference and you're just listening. This commission is for you. And the thing is, the thing that's glorious about it is that this is a transgenerational mission. And each generation of believers for 2,000 years has been called to carry it on. And the glorious thing about it is that right now, for just this little snap of the fingers in history, the torch of the Great Commission has been put into our hands. And our job is to do everything we can to light fires with it and then pass it on to our children who are going to pass it on to our grandchildren and on and on and on until Jesus comes back. We're here just for a half a second in the grand scheme of things. And yet, brothers and sisters, we are here for a half second. So let's make the best of it. There is a king who saves. There is a king who will save you. So go to him and trust him and take mercy from his hand. That's our message to the world. Here's the second thing, second point of application. This commission is given to us as churches. The commission is given to us as churches. Remember when it took effect, right? At the launching of the church by the Holy Spirit. That's when it took effect, not before. Not when you just had 11 individual Christians. 
happened when the church was organized by the Holy Spirit. So the commission is given to us as churches. I mean, one of the things that's been happening through the book of Matthew is that Jesus has been exercising royal authority to establish the church, every local church, as his embassy in the world. And you can kind of see how he does that as you, as you make your way through the book. Well, you know, I want my church, Third Avenue in Louisville, and I, and I hope your, your churches too, wherever they are, are urgently about the work of this mission. I mean, one of the things that, uh, that I love about being at, at Third Avenue in particular, and there are several Third Avenue members here and elders, and, and you guys will back me up on this. One of the things I love about our church is that we're not that, we're not that wealthy a church in terms of money. Compared to other churches in the, in the United States, we're just not that wealthy. But we are incredibly wealthy in terms of people who want to go to the nations and, and carry the gospel of, of Jesus to the world. We're incredibly wealthy. And so what, what we do, like year in and year out, is say goodbye to people constantly who are headed overseas to go plant churches in other lands. And we did that with Josh Manley 10, 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago. And uh, I mean, sometimes it can be a sad thing to say goodbye to people. I, I always say when, we're, when we come to the time of saying goodbye to people, I always say we're, we're back to this bittersweet moment that comes up in the life of Third Avenue over and over again where we're saying goodbye to people, right? And we did that with... Many of you who are, who are sitting here right now, we said goodbye to you. I, I, I joke sometimes uh, when, it, when a you know, particularly large number of people are leaving. I just joke sometimes with, with the elders, and I'll say things like, why don't we just declare an emphasis this year of going off mission for Jesus? Like, everybody just stay instead of going and make disciples. I mean, I'm kidding. I don't, I don't mean it, I, not, not even for a second. I, you know, as much as it hurts to send people off, I'm glad we do it because, because I'll take that pain of seeing people leave over and over and over again because it means that Jesus is going to be exalted in a new place, and that brings joy. This commission is given to us as, as churches, not just as individuals. Here's the third thing, just quick point of application. This is, as hard as it may sound, go make disciples of all the nations, as hard as that may sound, it is an unstoppable mission. It is an unstoppable mission. That's the implication of that phrase Jesus says, or that sentence, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. He doesn't just mean some authority. He doesn't just mean the authority that the rulers of the world don't challenge me for. It means all authority. Jesus died to save his people. They are all over the world, and he will stop at nothing to bring them home. And the glorious thing is that that gathering in of the elect, that gathering in of the atoned for is going to happen through you and me and our churches. And governments around the world may do everything in their power to stop that from happening. Communist Party of China may do everything in its power to stop the gospel from spreading. But as far as we know, as far as we can count, there are 150 million Christians in the nation of China right now because the gospel cannot be stopped. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the nations, and then the end will come. Last thing, I, t- I told you about this overarching structure to the book of, book of Matthew, so I want to keep that promise and tell you how Matthew structures his book. I wish I had time to like preach this whole thing, but I, but I don't. The book of Matthew is made up of five sections, and those five sections without fail go like this. You have narrative, a narrative section for some time, and then you have teaching about that narrative from Jesus. So it's narrative, teaching, narrative, teaching five times, right? 
But here at the very end, you've got this sixth section, which is the narrative of Jesus' death and resurrection. But you don't get any big teaching section about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's just narrative teaching, narrative teaching, narrative teaching, narrative teaching, narrative. Why is that? Because we're the ones that are supposed to do the teaching now about Jesus' death and resurrection. Matthew left his book deliberately unfinished. He wanted us to understand that it's not the end of it. He left it for us to finish the work until the king comes back to take us home.